We're in Ezekiel 17 tonight. That was a beautiful hymn. Ezekiel 17. So we're back on the um, a sermon per chapter. There are a few chapters. We've just run through maybe one or two of them, 16 certainly, where we legitimately can <clears throat> subdivide them a little bit. This is really a unit, though if I, if I wanted to, I think you could legitimately preach 1 through 21, and then there is a break in theme, um, 22 to the end, and I'll, I'll mention what that is. But I really, I really want to connect them because um, the Lord seems to do this almost in every other chapter. But um, I'll tell you what I mean in just a moment. Let's, let's read this text together. This is the word of God. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors comes, came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to the land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. He also took some of the seed of the land, planted it in a fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Then it sprouted and became low, a spreading vine with its branches towards him, but its roots remained under it, so it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. But there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, the vine bent its roots towards him and sent out its branches towards him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Uh, will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all the sprouting leaves wither? Neither by great strength nor by many people can it be raised from its roots again. Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it, wither on the bed where it grew? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family, made a covenant with him, putting him under an oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant, that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God. Surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised, whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in the war. When they cast up ramps and build siege walls to cut off many lies, <clears throat> now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Behold, he pledged his allegiance, yet he did all of these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, my covenant, which he broke, I will inflict on his head. I will spread my net over him. He will again be caught in my snare. Then I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him. There, regarding the unfaithful act, which he has committed against me, all the choice men in his troops will fall by the sword. The survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
I also will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost its young twigs, a tender one. I will plant it on a high and a lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear forth branches and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of the branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree. I exalt the low tree. I dry up the green tree. I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will perform it. Amen. Let's pray. O God, you are our God. You are our creator. You are our governor. And you are the shepherd, O God, and we are the sheep of your pasture. And we thank you for the grace that you manifest in this book and in our life. And may we live grateful lives, Lord. May we receive the hard things of your book, and may we receive the pleasant things of the book. And, Lord God, by your great grace, may we see that in your Son, Christ Jesus, uh, he's taken all the hard things, and we have received all your mercy. Uh, We thank you, Lord God. Uh, Grant me mercy in the preaching of your word tonight, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in the title, I missed, what did I put? put parable of eagles and in divine i missed one it's really parable of uh, two eagles it's eagles cedars in a vine that's really what what's going on um i want to say a few things about the parabolic form of the chapter god has been regularly inspiring ezekiel throughout this book in fact chapter one and chapter two those were doozies you remember um God has inspired Ezekiel to speak in symbolic language. And, there, and I'm going to mention that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament we see it, but certainly here, you remember early on in those earlier chapters, you have the wheels within the wheels, the wheels covered with eyes, and the wheels moving to and fro. And, and there in context, what you're seeing is clearly this is teaching some kind of, and they, they rise up with the, the angelic beings Clearly, God is bringing some kind of judgment upon first the Jews and then the Gentiles, the second part of this book. And he's using his servants. He's using angelic servants and then the wheels and all of those things. He's using even the engines of of, uh, human warfare. It's teaching something according to judgment. And so if I would apply that judgment principle from that symbolically put, um, and I would find a place, a counterpart in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted in the earlier chapters of the book of Revelation with a sword coming out of his mouth. It, again, descriptive of, of God's judgment upon sinners. And then the other symbolism that we've been looking at, and oftentimes some of the commentators take chapter 15, 16, and 17 together because they see the use of the symbolic language. Chapter 15, Israel is that um, fruitless vine and uses agricultural figures and he says, I came looking for good fruit, didn't find any good fruit. I found, in fact, bad, the, the deeds of the flesh. And we're back at the vine agricultural figures in our section here. But you go from the fruitless vine and then chapter 16, which I'm so thankful we got through chapter 16, is Israel was uh, the unfaithful um, wife. She's the adulterous wife. And she's grossly, I mean, just the, some of the word pictures were just fair, intensely gross, I, I think. And the language that the Lord uses. And so she's, um, she's grossly unclean. 
And so she's that kind of a, a wife. And now here we are, and God tells Ezekiel, use symbolic, parabolic language. Propose a riddle, propose a parable. And most of us have heard that Sunday school uh, definition that a parable is a heavenly story with earthly figures or something like that. And um, that's actually fairly accurate. <laughs> Even though it's a kiddie Sunday school definition, I think that's about right. God takes things from everyday life. These are everyday folk. And they know what an eagle looks like. They know what a cedar tree looks like. They certainly know what a vine looks like. And he says, okay, I'm going to teach you heavenly things by th- these kind of things. And so with the first couple of things that we look at, um, we see clearly these two eagles. And uh, I would argue... Um, I would argue that the, the, the eagles represent someone else, and we'll see the someone else. And then the, the cedar tree, along with the seeds plucked out from the ground, they represent other people again. And the vine represents the mass of uh, people. And that's what we're being taught here in this section. The, first, the, first, the identity of the first eagle, I think, is, is fairly eager, um, easy uh, to discern. And since the, and if you knew the context of the book, which is similar to parts of Isaiah, very similar to Jeremiah, um, Lamentations, um, Daniel, it's the Babylonian captivity. So if you know your redemptive history and you know that this is the Babylonian captivity, off they go into captivity in three waves, back they come in three waves. And so when you hear, well, there's a great eagle. And he flies in and he plucks off the top of the cedar and he takes some of the cedar, takes the top of the cedar and some of the seed and he flies back. This is the land of the merchants. That's Chalde- It's the root word is the word we get Chaldeans from. The Chaldeans and the Babylonians are the same people. And Chaldean means a merchant. So evidently the Babylonians were prolific in, in trade. So he takes them off to the traders. So the first eagle is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, the Babylonians, and then the second eagle. Um, there, have mainly, mainly, I think we can get at the main identity. So you have uh, the first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, plucks off a top of a tree, goes back to uh, Babylon, and then you see the vine, which is obviously every time we see it, it's, it's in reference to Israel, hyphen Judah, and the the vine was growing towards ba- the, the Babylonian king. And then the vine starts to, to spread out towards another eagle. And, and we're told later in the text, it's, a far, it's Pharaoh, it's Egypt. So we have these two eagles. One stands for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. And the other is some Pharaoh. I used to know the name of the two potential Pharaohs it could have been. But it's a Pharaoh, it's a king of Egypt. And they're two depicted as uh, two, um, two e- eagles. And we'll see that um, the top of the, the branch, I think, the king that's taken is, um, is the king Zedekiah uh, of, of Judah. And he's acting unfaithfully towards the Lord. We're going to see that. And towards, he's actually acting unfaithfully towards Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll see that he's reaching out with his branches to Pharaoh to help him against, um, against Babylon. There's a lot of lessons there for us, and we'll we'll unpack some of them, I hope. But I do want you to see what's going on. The Jews are being subjugated by the Babylonians, and the Jews looking for their help. They don't go to the Lord. Who who do they go to? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. 
that's very significant. Um, I'm not, I promise I won't, I was probably more political, I'm usually not very political, but I made some, I guess, socio-political comments this morning. Um, I think the church always suffers when we reach out to the civil magistrate to help the church. And I guess that would be my best application of this. Israel looks for help against the pagans to Egypt. They go back to Egypt. And and they go back to Egypt to be their liberator. So their former slaver, they seek to be their current uh, redeemer. There's a place in the Bible, look, Book of Lamentations maybe, how the gold has become dim. Let me read from Second Chronicles 36, giving, giving us some historical context. Chapter, verse 10. At the turn of the year, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him, this is the king, to, to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord. And he made his kings, kinsman, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. That's the person that um, Nebuchadnezzar puts under an oath. Uh, over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke uh, for the Lord. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God, the real God, and he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart and turned uh, against turning to the Lord of Israel. So we have... Babylon, the Babylonians take the um, Israelites off to captivity in Babylon. And rather than seeking the Lord, they seek the aid of the Egyptians. Um, The king Nebuchadnezzar makes one of the Jews, uh, he basically makes him a puppet king. There's nothing new under the sun. I guess I have politics on the brain. When we look at all of the things, when you turn on the television, think what's going on here and what's going on there. This is the good government. That's the bad government. You always do wonder, so... Who put that leader in power? And who took away that leader and replaced him with that, that leader? There's nothing new under the sun. People have been doing this for forever. And so Babylon said, you know what? We're going to take away that leader and we're going to put this leader in. And the leader we put in, you make sure that you're our good vassal. And he said, okay, I'll be uh, one of your good servants. And so that's kind of what's, what's going on here. But teaching us these things through symbols, I mentioned that the use of symbolism and figurative speech is not um, restrained to the, New, the Old Testament. I think the most symbolic, symbolical book in the Bible is, is the New Testament book, the book of Revelation. Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ does also speak to um, his people and to people in parables. And I want to give you an extensive quote from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. And... The use of parables is God is teaching redemptive information about salvation with earthly figures. Matthew 13, verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? They're asking Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And this is significant because this is why Ezekiel speaks in parables. Jesus answered them. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. This is a text that I would say, this is why I'm a Calvinist. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. 
Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And I'm going to basically distill the reasons why God uses these parables. The parables distinguish between two classes of people. The people that understand the parable, they have saving faith. The people that don't understand the parable, they don't have saving faith. Or the people that understand the parable, but they reject it, they also don't have saving faith. So the people that receive it, saving faith. The people that do not receive it, they have no saving faith. And so it's distinguishing between the two class of here. And we know ultimately, if we understand and we receive it, uh, because we have faith, that itself is a gift of God. And when you look at this, I would say that certainly verse 1 through 21 is the first section. Verse 22 to 24 is the second section. And much as we saw, certainly in chapter 16, but there have been a number of chapters like this, you have almost the whole chapter, which is essentially judgment. And then at the very end of the chapter, you'll have a a shorter portion of, um, of mercy, of salvation, uh, of redemption, of restoration. God saying, essentially, the wages of sin is death. The wages is you're going off to captivity. You're going off to captivity. You'll die by the sword. And then at the very end, he says, but I will seek and save a remnant. That's what's going on. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. We see it, Paul talks about in Romans 8 and Romans chapter 9. Um, It's almost the portions that we read, the larger portions are so overwhelming. And by the time you get to verse 23, you're failed, you're failed, you're failed. Judgment, judgment, but I will say. And again, it just highlights, it magnifies the mercy and the long-suffering of our God. So, the essence of verses 1 through 21 is God is reminding Israel, uh, and it's getting closer. I think chapter 24, he breaks and goes to the nations, but it's getting closer to the end. But what's happening here is he's reminding them, I am going to judge you. And look at what, what unbelieving Israel is doing. They're trying to get out of that. God's saying, you're going off to Babylon for 70 years. And what are they saying? Well, we don't think we're going to be there the whole 70 years. They originally said, we're not going anywhere. We're, we're, we're in Jerusalem. We're Jews. We're, go- we're not going anywhere. Wave one goes off. But we're still not going anywhere. Wave two goes off. And we're not staying anywhere for any 70 years. And God said through, through uh, Jeremiah, you're staying for 70 years. You didn't give the land the Sabbath. I'm going to give the land the Sabbath. 70 years. Pray for the land. You're not coming back for 70 years. And Israel said, oh, no, no, we're out of here. And so what they're trying to do, these are the professing people of God. I suppose we do this all the time. I will judge sinners. Nope. Nope. I'm going to go to plan B, and I am going to get out of this judgment business. And God says, look it, I'm going to send one eagle to get you. And they say, you know what? We're going to get the other eagle to come get us out of here. So sure, God, you have a plan A, but we're going to have a plan B. We're out of here. Exit stage right. Uh, Beloved, 
there's nothing new under the sun. When God says the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins will die, and those who don't repent and return to him will receive judgment, unbelieving man is always, they're always looking for the loophole. How can I, how can I escape judgment? And God says over and over again, there is no escape. And so they look obviously to the, I, I think the Egyptians at this time were a lesser power than the Babylonians, but I, I can't remember, I can't be sure of that, but they certainly were a mighty power. So they said essentially, well, we think we can find man to save us. And you remember all along in this book, and this is what Ezekiel has been doing, is God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And you're sinning, repent, return. You're sinning, repent and return. And time and time and time again, they stiffen their neck, they stiffen their neck, they stiffen their neck. And that and that's what's happening uh, here. Um, they're turning a, I would argue, they're turning a deaf ear to God and they continue to brace their sin. And they're seeking man as their savior. Again, I, I don't, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's improper to say that there are many times that we as Christian people seek men, human beings, collections of human beings, as our savior. And they're actually, I would argue, when God says, you're going off to captivity for seven years, and they say essentially to God, no, we're not, they're looking to man to save them from God. That's why later God will say when he refers in the first part of this covenant business, Nebuchadnezzar's covenant, he'll actually switch and say, but it's my covenant. You made, a, you made an agreement to, to subject yourself to Nebuchadnezzar, but he's being my servant. And when you are rebelling against him because he's my servant, you're rebelling against me. And so when the Jews go looking for the Egyptians to liberate them from the Babylonians, and the Babylonians acting as God's servants, even unwittingly, they're rebelling against God. This is, this is a professing church member saying, I'll get man to fight for me against God. And you would think, well, how stupid. It is. Sin is a very stupid thing. But we do it all the time. And so what are some of the spiritual lessons when we look here, when God says, I, I, I will take you away. And I'm going to send an eagle to come get you. What are some lessons that we, we have here for Israel? Um, I would argue the first lesson that we see is that, um, is that the God of the Bible has all of the attributes of the God of the Bible. And I know that sounds silly, but isn't it the case as believers, sometimes our view of God, even as believers, is far too small. Um, we don't have a God-sized view often. And I know this is true for myself. If, if my view of God were larger, would I be as tremulous as I am? No, no. Would, be, would we be as frightened? Would we be as unhappy as we are? Um, would we be wringing our hands? What will happen if this thing doesn't happen with the laws? And what will happen? Would we wring our hands? No, if we knew that he's the God of heaven and earth, he speaks things into crea creation, he's always with us, and he is our strong tower, our defender. If we believed all these things, we had a God-sized view of God, uh, we would be those overcomers in the world. And the first thing God is teaching his people, that he is a God-sized God. 
he says to Nebuchadnezzar, go get my people. God takes a pagan and says, pagan, go get my people and act as a chastising instrument. And so sometimes we hear the free will of man is superior, is supreme. And isn't it amazing that God subordinated his will to the will of man? Isn't that amazing that he cedes some of his sovereignty to, to man? You hear all these silly things. They're, they're silly. Um, did Nebuchadnezzar willingly, consciously choose to serve God? No, no, no. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, God moves kings' hearts like a river. Read, read Romans 9. For this reason, Pharaoh, what? I raised you up. Pharaoh wasn't a, wasn't a believer. Pharaoh didn't say, I want to serve Jehovah for the glory of his name. I, I, I just want to be a blessing. No, God said, I'm going to put you where I put you. I'm going to put you with power. You're a pagan. I'm going to use you as a chastising instrument against my people. And when we look at God orchestrating all of this, and he puts it in a book, what, should, what aspect of God should we learn that we would take notice of his judgment on sin and his forgiveness of sin? He's sovereign. Sovereignty isn't, we've talked about it a bunch. Sovereignty isn't just when you become a Calvinist and beat up on all your Armenian families, which is kind of silly, but we all, many of us do it. I did it, sadly. Just silly. The sovereignty of God is much, much bigger than just something fun to fight over at the coffee table like we actually know, understand election. Everything. He governs all of his creatures and all of their actions by his spirit and by his word. Everything. We, we don't have a hot clue. He brought the Lord Jesus Christ into the world through, through, through this. He brought him to the cross. He brought him to heaven. He's working everything out. And so when God says, I have everything under control, I say to Nebuchadnezzar, go get my people. Chastise them, pagan, Gentile. Why? You, you, they're, they're pagans. Yes, because my people are acting like pagan Gentiles. And I'm going to chastise them with a pagan Gentile. You want to live like a pagan Gentile? I'm going to chastise you with a pagan Gentile. You want to live like a Babylonian? Remember, they're off in chapter 16. They're committing infidelity, adult spiritual adultery with the gods of Babylon. You love the gods of Babylon so much, I'm going to give you to the Babylonians. And that's the sovereignty of God. And it's the principle of lex talionis. It's perfect, perfect justice and even perfect discipline when it's applied to a believer. God does it perfectly. And so we're learning that God is God. He's the God of the Bible. He does everything according to his will. And the free will of man is not supreme. It's not foundational. The free will of God, of God is. And God has free will. And God exercises his will. And he puts people on the throne. He put Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. He put Pharaoh on the, phone, the throne. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who raised up has mercy. For the scripture says for Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of chastising and bringing judgment to the unbelievers among just my, just chastisement to the believers and, and judgment to the unbelievers among uh, Israel hyphen Judah. But then he judged Nebuchadnezzar. Again, this is the sovereignty of God. It's beyond our full comprehension. And so when we look around at our world, and I have been, it's, I've been lamenting the war in Ukraine. I've been lamenting this. It's, this, is, this, again, is, 
is not as bad as the, the, the virus and these kind of things that literally wrecked families. It divided households. But this is going to get up there. Um, this is another thing for the country to tear itself apart over um, the wars and the rumors of wars and so on. God is in control of Putin. God is in control of the Ukrainian president. God put Joe Biden as our president. God put President Trump as the former president. God did it. And we have no idea whether he's doing it for judgment or for good or for, for good in some unique way. But he is, he is putting people on the throne and he is taking them off of the throne. And he likens, God likens... Um, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Pharaoh to an eagle. It's the mightiest. It's the, it's the mightiest of the birds, and that's the idea. They have might and power. The people of the Lord are often the little flock. I just I know I have good friends that are post millennial, and boy, we're gonna we're gonna take over everything. We're gonna take over the academy. We're gonna take over the military. We're get, we're taking over. And I love my brothers that believe that. I just don't believe it. I just don't see it in Scripture. I don't see it. I don't see it in the Bible. I don't see it in my experience. I see the people of God as the little flock. And ordinarily, the men with power, both in the academy and in the military, in the political sphere, they seem to be like these fellows. They seem to have the power, the might, and so on. But God will use them. And, uh, and he uses them in this instance to correct his, his people. And I've, I've mentioned that um, he uses the pagans to chastise the church for living like uh, pagans. There is an instance of, you remember Pontius Pilate was having a conversation with Jesus, and he asked Jesus, are you a king? And at one time, Jesus didn't respond to him. And Pontius Pilate said, are you not answering me? Do you not know that I can kill you? I have the power to kill you. You remember that? I'm going to read that interchange. And this is important for us. Because as we look at the wars and the rumors of wars and the current president, I think the current president, is he's, he, has, he needs a lot of prayer, and cognitively and so on. Will he make the remainder of his term? I don't think so. Um, but God is in control of all of these things. And it, it's helpful for us as Christians to believe that God God is in control. John 19.10, So Pilate said to Christ, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And here's Jesus' answer. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered to me to you as the greater sin. You would punch his Pilate You would have no authority over me unless it has been granted to you from above. Pontius Pilate. And what did Pontius Pilate do to the Lord Jesus Christ? He crucified him. He crucified him. What does that mean? God raised up Pontius Pilate, granted him the political power, physical military power, to put to death the Lamb of God. It was God's will. He allowed this lesser king to put to death the king of kings and the lord of lords. I I would argue the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what we see from 22 to the end. But my larger point with this is God is teaching them the lesson of God 101, 
Sovereignty 101. Sovereignty 101 lifts up kings, lifts up people, and then he brings them down. And the idea is he's trying to convince his people, why do you want to be like the pagans? Why do you reach out to, to, to kings that are mere men? Why You have me. Why worship the gods of the pagans when you have me? It's a lesser to the greater argument. Why reach out to the king of Egypt over and against the king of Babylon when you have me? He's in control over everything. And beloved, this is I know this is true. We do this all the time. Well, we need to do this. We need to do that. We, and we forget. Wait a minute. I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we say he, has a thousand, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But we, we sometimes don't act like it. And so um, God is governing all things. I've mentioned God is teaching them that pagan rulers are God's judgment. Uh, I would say in a paganist church, um, we get the kind of leaders that we are as a, a citizenry, I would argue. The kind of people that become leaders from the president down in civil government, we get the kind of leaders that reflect the morality of the citizenry. And so when we think, wow, they're, <laughs> they look like such and so, yes. So the, the people are being taught, paganish leaders um, are God's recompense on a paganish people. And I would argue a paganish church. So when the church begins to live like the world, the Lord uses the world to correct us. And the other thing that we le- learn is that they're going to suffer abuse at the hands of both the Babylonians and the, um, and the Egyptians, the unbelievers, one of the things that we don't learn, some, some of us as moms and dads try to teach our kids, we learn this maybe because we were living in the world, we try to tell our kiddos, look at bad company corrupts good morals. You, do think, you don't think it does, but it really does. We have an easier time than our kids um, in some ways because we're married, we have our vocations, and if we're married, we have a, a built-in friend, and our kids need friends. And our kids are not married, and our kids are... So, I would say sometimes the parents have it a little bit easier and we're not as um, as uh, particularly sensitive towards our kids in this. It's a real struggle for they, they need friendship and companionship and those kind of things. Um, but the notion is still correct. Um, the church here keeps trying to make friends with the world. We'll go to Babylon. They'll be, they'll be our friend. We'll go to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will be our friend. And all the time, the unbelievers are saying, oh, yes, we're going to be your friend. And what happens every time? Bad company corrupts good morals. The, the, the Babylonians say, surprise, we're not your friend. The Egyptians say, surprise, we're not your friend. Remember chapter 16, their lovers became their haters. Surprise, we're not your paramour. We hate you. But, you know, that lesson's a hard one. And sometimes we learn it once, and then we go back to the world, and the world ling. You know, I think it'll be different this time. Again, because I've got politics on the brain. Every four years, we think it's going, be, it's going to be different. It'll be different this time. This, this my unbeliever will really help the church. My unbeliever will really, this new unbeliever will really help the church. We, 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 always, um, we always find out the hard way that um, 
that we will be abused by the pagans for making friends with the unbelievers. I know it seems harsh, but it's um, it's actually not. And um, uh, here I mentioned earlier that the professing people of God are using the Egyptians, so they're not they've not learned their lessons. We as professing Christians. We are so slow. You think, well, why does God need to write like a whole book, Ezekiel, where it's mostly judgment, mercy, judgment, judgment, mercy, um, don't sin, mercy for sin. Why does he need such a lengthy book? I read the Puritans so much, and they refer to students as scholars, which I kind of like that, scholar, to be a young scholar. We are not very sharp scholars. <laughs> we, need, we need that lesson over and over and over again. But... But Egypt will help me. No, they won't. I'll go back. And it really wasn't as bad as as I used to think it was. And so God sends them lesson after lesson after lesson. And have the people of God learned their lesson? No, they haven't. And this is why it has to be grace. It has to to be God coming at the very end. Let's let's jump over. I I don't want to be overly redundant. I've already mentioned that we can... Wicked leaders are wicked leaders are a result of wicked pe- people and and those kind of things. But I, I want to. Zedekiah is the man who breaks faith with Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah tries to make a side deal with the the Egyptian pharaoh to come help him, and essentially God says it's it's not going to work. And um, Nebuchadnezzar gave Zedekiah the kingship, puts him under an oath. He says yes, I'll obey, and he he doesn't obey and he breaks faith and you might be thinking well wait a minute if you're the people of God and a pagan nation subjugated you wouldn't it be at least reasonable that you could go to another pagan nation to get military aid to free yourself doesn't that seem reasonable well maybe at first glance it would seem reasonable and we are a very very good people at talking ourselves out of just simple obedience and what do I mean yeah, if you reason like an unbeliever, yes, you should make a military alliance. And if you don't have the Bible, go make a military alliance. But he had the Bible. God said, you're staying there for 70 years. Get used to it. Pray for it. In 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. But we sometimes always go to plan B, even though the Bible says this is exact. And we reason like unbelievers. We reason not by faith, but by sight, which was what Zedekiah was doing. And God was offended. He said, you broke faith, and you broke faith with me, and it's not going to work. And we're being taught if, if, if God says something, even if something seems reasonable, but it's against the word of God, it's always safer to go with the word of God. And, and obviously the notion is when he plucks off some of the rich people, some of the rulers, and plants them, and he says, you're not going to make it. You're going to be destroyed. So the notion is there will be some of the people that will die for their sins. And at the very, very end, what we looked at is I I would argue from 22 to 24, God is saying, I'm going to take a sprig. And the sprig is referring to a a king in the line of David. That's Zedekiah. He comes from the Davidic house. God says, I'm going to take a sprig and I'm going to plant the sprig. And this sprig will be fruitful. This sprig will be fruitful. And I'm going to plant them not over in Babylon, not over here, I'm going to plant him on a, on a mountain. The end of chapter 16, and this is, this is a counterpart, 16 verse 60, God says, after he just said, you've been faithless to your marriage covenant, just like Zedekiah has been faithless to his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar and God. 
God says this in Ezekiel 16, 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older, your younger. I will give them to you as daughters, not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with, with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. So there, there is no, there's no escape. But for this covenant that God makes with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Davidic king, and God says, in him, you'll finally uh, flourish. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.